one. There it is. Oh my God. It's finally here. The day has arrived. We've got the coolest guest in the world. I'm super pumped, super excited. Been talking about this for a long time. So tune in. You will not want to miss this. Practicing polyamory, real life perspectives from the imperfect people of polyamory. The mission of the Practicing Polyamory podcast is to provide a platform for all of the real-life, flawed humans that practice polyamory so that we might all learn from one another and grow as a community. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody. What's here? It's here. It's finally here. Welcome to the show this special Friday. Before we jump into the show, just really quickly, I'm going to go through these three things that I've been talking about really, really fast. So number one, woohoo, we did it. YouTube subscribers, find us on YouTube at uh, youtube.com slash practicing polyay and everywhere on social media at practice, practicing polyay. Please be sure to re- leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you're downloading the podcast. Number two, been talking about it for the last two weeks. Go to bondingproject.com because we're going to be talking about it today, right now. And if you don't go, if you haven't gone, you're not going to know what we're talking about. So go to bondingproject.com, take that bonding test to get an idea of your bonding style. And lastly, as always, as a reminder, if you're listening, you're a welcome guest to be on this show. If you're actively polyam, if you are polyam curious, if you're a professional serving the polyamorous community, and of course, as I always say, if you're disabled, BIPOC pan, bi, demi, gay, straight, sex worker, kinkster, queer, lesbian, trans, NB, ace, arrow, whatever it is, and if I missed you, tell me so I can add it. I want to hear your story because as I keep saying, the more stories we hear, the more the world learns about us, the more representation we have, and the better we can serve our community. All right, that's it. Let's introduce our awesome guest. Our guest today needs no introduction, seeing as I've been talking about her the past two weeks, but intros are my thing, so she's getting one anyway. Our guest is the foremost academic expert on polyamorous families with children, and her 23-year-long study of those families is the only longitudinal study, so she's one of a kind, to date. In addition to more than 20 peer-reviewed journal articles and an extensive blog, she has published four books, including The Polyamorous Next Door, Stories from the Polycule, When Someone You Love is Polyamorous, and Children in Polyamorous Families. Her newest project, The Bonding Project, helps people find out their preferred bonding style so they can connect with partners who have compatible bonding styles. There is so much to cover and we'll never have enough time. So without any more fangirling from me, welcome to the show, Dr. Eli Sheff. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, I, I can't be more thrilled to have you on. I'm just like, seriously, fangirly. I'm so excited. I've been talking about this for a couple of weeks and just really, okay, so a little bit of backstory for everybody. Um, the way that I found Dr. Eli, I went on polyfriendly.org and I emailed everybody on that list. And when Dr. Eli replied, I gave like this quick, you know, almost copy and paste type of reply. And then it something hit me. I was like, that name sounds familiar. I did a quick Google search and I realized who I was talking to. And I went back and I was like, oh my gosh, seriously, this is the, like one of the most famous authors in the polyam community. And I just like copied and pasted a message. Let me, let me fix that. And she was gracious enough to uh, continue the conversation and join me here today. So, you know, Thank you. I cannot say say it enough. Um, 
let me jump right into some of the some of the things that I wanted to talk to you about. The first one was uh, your study, your longitudinal study. The first question that I had when uh, when you sent me your information was, why start this study? When I listened to your book, The Polyamorous Next Door, I learned that there was a quite a personal reason to start the study at all. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Let the audience get to know where you came from. Absolutely. Um, when I was 22, I fell in love with a man that surprised me. I He was supposed to be like a disposable boy toy for me at the time um, before I got back to real relationships with women. And so when I fell in love with him, I was surprised and suddenly also very concerned because he had been clear from the beginning that he didn't want to be monogamous. And at first I was like, I don't care, whatever, freak, you know, I don't care. <laughs> um, but then once I was in love with him, I was like, wait a minute here, buddy, what does that mean? <laughs> and as a, as a monogamous person, I um, think I, I did what I think a lot of monogamous people do when they hear their partner wants multiple partners is I thought, okay, there must be something wrong with me. Maybe I'm too mm. fat. Maybe I'm bad in bed. You know, like, what is it that he needs other people? Um, and so we talked about that for a while. And then eventually I found this group of people practicing exactly what he'd been asking for, and they were calling it polyamory. And I was like, oh, there's a word for this. Let's <laughs> check them out. So for the first probably two-ish years, I was around them. I was kind of, I think of myself as a civilian in a mm -hmm. way, just checking it out to see what impact it might have on me. Like, it, I felt so insecure about it. I was like, how do you people deal with this? How does this not feel awful to you, your partner right. wanting someone else? And um, as an intellectual, I intellectualize things that freak me out. So I was like, ah, I'm going to study this and make it hold still. And, you know, I'll be able to like, I won't be so afraid of it. Right, right. So, so that's, that's, how, that's how the study began. That's yes. what started the whole thing. Yes. But it came with a personal reason. So you've been basically following different groups of people, different uh, polyamorists, polyamorists, <laughs> people that practice polyamory through all this time. Uh, you've developed friendships with them. You've gotten mm -hmm. uh, pretty close with a lot of them. And uh, I'm going to just throw this out there. If you have not read or listened to i'm an audiobook guy if you have not read or listened to the polyamorists next door go and check that out because it's really in depth all of the things that she covers but um so what well, you know a lot of the questions are, are answered in there but one of the big questions that comes from this that came out of this is how do children how do the children of polyamorous families feel about their parents and, you know, the things that, that they've gone through their experiences? Actually, the kids in my study, as they're getting older, they're reflecting a lot on the things they learned from their parents. So they're telling me that while they weren't perfect parents all the time, and sometimes being in a polyamorous family sucked for them, 
the kinds of things that sucked were family things that happen in families in general. So nothing super specific to polyamory, although the stigma that they would deal with wasn't fun at all and was similar to stigma that like gay and lesbian families have dealt with, Mm -hmm, interracial mm -hmm. families, you know, families deal with stigma, unfortunately. Immigrant families, lots of different families. Basically anything that's outside of the norm, right? Right, right. Or even if it is the norm, like divorced families are so common right now that people aren't as freaked out about them anymore as they used to be. Like divorce used to be a terrible thing and you wouldn't Mm -hmm. let your children play with, you know, parents who were divorced, their kids might, you know, infect you with divorce somehow. (laughs) That, you know, it's that infectious idea has been applied to definitely gay people and the polyamorous people, kinky people. And I got to say, if, we're that I identify as gay um, if mm-hmm. or bisexual, lesbian leaning bisexual. Um, if we're that tantalizing that we can, you know, just like with one little touch, like spread the gay, <laughs> then your heterosexuality is not that strong. <laughs> can we just do that? Can we just spread the gay? <laughs> yes, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> I mean, that's it's- not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Oh, but that's how it should work. It's fine. It's fine. I love it. I love it. It's so good. Um, so, at least according to the people who are freaked out by it, who don't want like transgender people to be able to use restrooms or something. Oh, right. they might spread the trans. You know, ridiculous shit. I have to say. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Totally agree. So, children really, they're they're doing pretty well. You know, just. Dis- I want. I, I almost said despite having polyamorous parents, but that's not really the word that I want to use. Um, in fact, you've found that they have more advantages than disadvantages. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, I would say a lot of these children are doing so well because of having such a wide social safety net that they get from being in a polyamorous family. It's, I mean, anyone who's single parented knows that raising a kid can be exhausting and expensive and Mm -hmm. rewarding. I don't want to just come up with all these awful adjectives, but (laughs) you need help. I mean, it's such a huge job. And when you can spread that out among multiple people, especially Mm -hmm. when the kid is small, then the kid figures it out and takes it on and starts to develop their own wider safety net, not only of the adults they knew that they can, they grew up with and they can still call on, but figures out how to make connections with people and establish and maintain emotionally intimate relationships, which is a significant life skill. And in fact, that kind of, heavy communication family that Mm -hmm. that generally there's a lot of communication, honesty in polyamorous families. It leads to the kids trusting their parents more and being able to talk to their parents about things that they really don't see their peers Mm -hmm. discussing with their parents. So the kids from polyamorous families feel like 
they're able to transition into a more adult relationship with their parents that they can maintain emotional intimacy as the relationship changes, which is something that adults in polyamorous relationships do and mm-hmm. then model for their children. You know, relationships that, yeah. in general change and flex over time. And if you can't allow anything to change, good luck staying precisely the same for the next 10 years. <laughs> and that inability to flex is actually really brittle not resilient. Right. Yeah. So 23 years, 20, 23, 25 years, 25, 25 now that you've been studying. I started in 1996. 96. Wow. So So you 2021. So you've seen these kids grow up uh, when they, when you started working with them or talking to them, they were, some of them were very young. You know, I think uh, you said that the start, the youngest was like five years old. So now they're, going to be mid twenties or, you know, as late as in their early forties, how have they transitioned as adults? Have they, were they infected with the polyamorous uh, (laughs) gene or whatever? (laughs) You know, what they were infected with was free thought and the ability to make choices. Nice. (laughs) So sometimes that translates to being in a polyamorous relationship. Sometimes It doesn't. It really translates for them into having a wide range of options and thinking about what they want to choose. So some of them are certain they do not want to be polyamorous. It's too complicated. They want the attention of Mm -hmm. one person. They don't want to share it. Others of them feel like polyamory is too many rules, too confining, relationship anarchy might be a better choice for them. A lot are in the middle who are like, you know, I'm figuring life out. I'm a young person. I'm trying to figure out the whole sex thing. Trying to figure Mm -hmm. out polyamory at the same time is just too much, you know, like, but it, it's definitely an option for their future, depending on who they partner with and what Mm -hmm. their partner or partners want. So there's no compulsion though. Like not a single one has said, oh, if I'm not polyamorous, my family will reject me. You know, instead actually they find a lot of acceptance from their families for, for instance, gender fluidity. Mm Mm-hmm. Most of the adults in my sample, and by adults, I mean, like, the parent generation is mostly, like, Gen X and Mm. the end of the baby boom. Like, the youngest boomers and Gen X are the parent. And so the kids are mostly millennials and Gen Z. Mm -hmm. And among that, those generations anyway, there's quite a bit of gender fluidity, much more so than the parent generation. Sure, yeah. But even though their parents tend to be cisgender, heterosexual, or bisexual people, these children are coming out to their parents as gender fluid, agender, non-binary, transgender, pansexuals, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, most of them pansexual, even if the kind of sex they've had is with a person of a different gender, 
So some people might look at that and think, oh, heterosexuality, but they're reluctant to take on any identity that closes down their choices. This generation, the children, are very much about choice and not getting boxed into something that, you know, then they're like, oh, no, you said you were a lesbian. That means no dick for you, honey. They don't want to say that. You know, if they decide they want dick that day, they get it. Nice. So it's it's really just open things up. There's no, there there is no box, like you're saying. There's They just have all of the choices. I love it. I love it. That's fantastic. Okay. Um, I had, I did this again. It's okay. Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the bonding project. Now, I did take the test, and apparently I am now challenged on one-to-one relationships. So I, I, I apparently can't call myself monogamous anymore. No, um, that's not true. You can call not yourself whatever you want. Okay. You get to call yourself. The bonding <laughs> project is definitely not about hemming you into an identity and then saying, ah, you're stuck. Ha-ha! We got you. <laughs> No, no. It's about kind of thinking and exploring. So I'm I'm interested, does that feel accurate to you when you think about one-to-one connection and like no more sex with anyone else for the rest of your life, only that one person? Yeah, is no. that appealing to you? So you might be mm-hmm. challenged. Yeah, I mean, now that I've With discovered that. now that I've discovered polyamory, it's like, yeah, no, that doesn't make any Oh hell no. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all. Um so but prior to discovering uh polyamory, so 5-ish years ago, I probably would have been challenged on everything other than one to one. And that's the beauty of the bonding project, actually, is that it assumes people will change over time. You can take the test as many times as you want. You can take the test, like, thinking about a specific relationship. And then you can take the test thinking just about yourself. No other relation, you know, not with any one person in mind, but, like, no relationship. What do you think? And then a week later, it might change. Mm-hmm. For some people, though, they have a deep-seated identity that really does not fluctuate over right. time. I mean, I've met in my research definitely people who are polyamorous by orientation. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, if they would have been able to change it and be satisfied and really comfortable in a monogamous relationship they would have changed their orientation because actually coming out as polyamorous and living a polyamorous lifestyle cost them their connection to this religious community that was really important to them yeah so that was a big thing for them but they were like i can't i i, I suppressed it for so long i can't keep it down anymore mm-hmm it's got to come out. Um, and then I think the the opposite is true, um, that there are some people who are monogamous by orientation right. and will never feel comfortable in a polyamorous relationship. And no shade on any of them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like just how you're wired. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting smile that smile and wave, boys. Smile and wave. It's interesting that, that, that you bring that up, uh, monogamous by orientation. Uh, and earlier you were talking about, about the children, that they have more of this freedom. And something that popped into my mind was uh, monogamy, like conscious monogamy or, or, you know, monogamous by choice as opposed to by default. And I almost wonder if I had been for, you know, the majority of my life monogamous by default, just because I didn't know that there was another option. And when another option was presented to me and, you know, I did the work to like allow it, it's like, there's no way I can go back. So I don't know if that means that I'm polyamorous by orientation or just learned, but either way, um, but back to the bonding project. So, so we know we have an idea of what it is, you know, tells us our, our bonding styles, but what's the purpose behind it like why why did you start it and what's the goal Mm. those are such good questions um my collaborator jess wise originally came up with the idea because she dates a lot and got really tired of having this conversation with people over and over of if you want to be with me you really should not ever expect exclusivity from Mm -hmm. me and I need you to know that before we connect. So this doesn't become an issue later. Like this is important to me. And she just would have loved some kind of test to give people to say, take this test and then we'll talk, you know, (laughs) let me know your body style and then we'll talk. Um, So she came to me and I was like, oh, that's such a good idea. And I started looking at the literature and because as an academic, that's always the first thing we do, you know, yep, like yep. what's the research say? <laughs> I looked at research on um, relationship satisfaction in mostly consensually non-monogamous relationships because they compare CNM to monogamy and cheating in that literature. So it kind of gives you the entire range. Mm-hmm to look at what makes people most satisfied, like what kind of person is most satisfied with non-monogamy and conversely, who would be most satisfied with monogamy. And I think it was very important for us to include solo bonders in this Mm. test because so many people either are single and want to stay single or singleness doesn't mean like alone and no more sex, you know, and like you just live in a dark closet all the time anymore. (laughs) You know, it's not like you're, you know, like this loathsome reject or something. If you're single, thinking of a troll in a cave. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Like poor single people, you know, screw that image of them. A lot of people are single because they prioritize their freedom Mm -hmm. and they like connection. So just being single doesn't mean like you never want to have sex or you don't want companionship, but maybe you don't want someone in your bed every single night expecting your, you know, to connect around retirement savings or something, (laughs) you know, maybe you want... Tuesdays and Thursdays or whatever, some kind of flexibility. Mm-hmm. That's, so that's, the, included... the, that's the solo poly folks, really. 
solo poly, single people, asexual people, mm. I think also, um, relationship anarchists. Um, although range. this, yeah, yeah, a lot of people. Look, I mean, and they don't always call it solo bonding, but they, a lot of people will say, well, I want to, I don't want to, I'm not looking for a relationship, you know, but I want connection and trust and fun and, you know, like companionship and sex and interaction and somebody I can count on if I need help. And, mm -hmm. oh, I would totally be there for you, but I'm not looking for a relationship, you know, and all those things sound very relationshipy, but they don't necessarily want all the shackles that come right. with kind of being in a relationship. You know? Don't want to promise you forever and all those things. Exactly. You know, they want to be together as it works for everyone. And realistically, that's what most people do anyway. So yeah. the solo bonders are just a little more upfront about it. Really. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. I mean, it is what people do. We stay in marriages as long as it works, right? The divorce rate is basically 50%. So, you know, flip a coin and figure out if you're going to stay together or not. And, you know, if you don't, it's okay. Um, a, a lot of times in, and one of the things that, that I keep finding out it, it, in our uh, monogamous counterparts, if you get a divorce, like that's typically the end of the relationship. Like, you know, if there's co-parenting situations, like sometimes it could get really ugly, you know, whatever. But in our polyamorous folks or, or ethical non-monogamy folks, we usually are able to like de-escalate relationships and find a way to really work together. We have a lot of more, a lot more of this communication. Um, but that's off topic and getting back to the bonding project i want to ask you this what have you found out so far oh so interesting we are um we just went live in january and at first we had like 10 14 27 people take it and then it just took off we are nearing 10,000 people having taken it since January. Nice. So yeah, it's, it really, it kind of blew our minds a little bit because we weren't at one point really prepared for that. It broke us. It broke our, our background, <laughs> whatever, like Oops, the, broke the server in server or what, like how, however, however we host whatever, it. I don't know internet things. Yes, exactly. Whatever <laughs> there are, uh, there is a person on our team who deals with that. Kirk Henderson, shout out to you, Mr. Awesome. Whoop, whoop. He, oh yeah, he, he handles like, and the poor guy was just like, oh my God, <laughs> a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have. And we I think he's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good problem to have. So, uh, over 10,000 uh, submissions have been made. Um, what, what's, what are the results? What are we learning? You know what we're finding? It's so interesting um, that many of our respondents identify as something other than heterosexual. Many, oh. many of them are somewhere in the LGBTQ spectrum. Okay. Um, they tend to be cisgender. However, the vast majority are cisgender mm -hmm. and 80% of them have responded that they want at least some form of access to multiple partners. 
but it was only in the low 60s. Multiple partners sexually, they want to have sex with multiple partners over 80%. But in the low 60s, I'm going to say 63-ish percent, something like that, wanted to have multiple emotional relationships. So people want multiple sex partners with not as many strings. Although still more than half wanted multiple emotional and sexual partners, which I thought was super interesting. Are a lot of these folks, do they identify typically as monogamous or are, is a lot of the people that are going to the website, are they already identifying as non-monogamous? That is such a good question. We don't ask that their current identity. Okay. Um, It would be really interesting to know. We, you know, we really have, avoided labels mm-hmm. with the bonding project because and, and just focused on kind of what kind of interaction people want without calling it monogamy or something. So we call it one-on-one bonding because some people want to bond with just one other person, but don't want the cultural weight of monogamy, like all that baggage of religion and patriarchy and, you know, that kind of weighs monogamy down, but they don't want multiple partners, you know? So they're like, it's not monogamy, but I want to be with just one person. Mm -hmm. So we thought we would just talk about the style of bonding one-to-one, one-to-many, many-to-many or solo instead of giving it names Kind of like some of those uh, polyamorous children that are or children of polyamorous families that you're talking about that actually made the choice uh, consciously to to choose monogamy. So, absolutely, Dr. Eli, this has been way too short of a 30 minute segment. Um, I hope that I can get you on again sometime down the line. But Sounds in the like meantime. Fun. In the meantime, uh, is there any final thoughts uh, for you? And if is there anything else that you would want to leave? Is is there any anything that you would want people to contact you for? And if so, how can they get in touch with you? Let's see. So I'm going to first close with um, my primary research finding from the longitudinal polyamorous family study is that while these families do experience disadvantages, none of them are specific to polyamorous families. And in fact, the advantages outweigh those disadvantage, those family disadvantages that everyone experiences. And that's really crucial information because sometimes these families lose their children. They will lose custody of their children in court because court thinks the judge, the family court judge, thinks this family style is bad for kids. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It really depends on how the adults handle it, just like monogamy. Some monogamous families suck. <laughs> some of them are fantastic. And it's the same, exactly the same with polyamorous families, only leaning more towards the fantastic because if they're having problems, they can spread the solution around and get help. So don't take their children away. Don't take their children away. That's my most important thing I wanted to say. Um, what else did you ask me? Uh, if oh, anything- what I offer? Yes. 
So I offer expert witness services if someone is trying to move <laughs> children away. I also do relationship coaching for people who are trying to find or maintain polyamorous or kinky relationships. Um, and I teach all sorts of stuff, continuing education and things like that. Perfect. Oh, and I uh, blog on psychology today. I forgot about that. Yeah. I blog on psychology today under the polyamorous next door. <laughs> Perfect. And uh, also follow Dr. Chef uh, at Dr. Eli Chef on Twitter. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Dr. Eli, this really has been such a pleasure. Uh, I want to thank you again for uh, spending spending some of your time with us. Really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can do this again another time. I'd love it. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. And as always, thank you to our live audience for tuning in. As a reminder, when we're live, you don't get any commercial interruptions, but the same cannot be said for the podcast downloads. So if you want to avoid the commercial interruptions, be sure to catch us live Monday through Wednesday, 2.30 Pacific time, uh, or subscribe on YouTube, Facebook. Uh, Twitter or Twitch, make sure you hit that bell so you get the notifications when we're live. Or sign up for our Patreon where you get access to our commercial-free RSS feed and you get to support the show. Uh, don't forget to head over to bondingproject.com between, well, bondingproject.com because we're, we're, we're here. We're talking about it, and uh, that's what I've been telling people to do for the past two weeks. So anyway, thanks again, everybody, for thank hanging you. out. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Eli. My pleasure. Beautiful day. So get out there and have a nice day. Thank you for tuning in to the Practicing Polyamory podcast. Would you or someone in your polycule like to be a guest? Sign up at practicingpolyamory.com and join the conversation. Please support us by subscribing, liking, and following us on social media at Practicing Polya by clicking any of the affiliate links on our website or by subscribing at patreon.com slash practicingpolya.